When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 9, Part 1 June 19th Once safely shut into my room, I opened these pages and prepared to go on with that part of the day's record which was still left to write. For ten minutes or more I sat idle with the pen in my hand, thinking over the events of the last twelve hours. When I at last addressed myself to my task, I found a difficulty in proceeding with it which I had never experienced before. In spite of my efforts to fix my thoughts on the matter in hand, they wandered away with the strangest persistency in the one direction of Sir Percival and the Count, and all the interest which I tried to concentrate on my journal centered instead in that private interview between them which had been put off all through the day and which was now to take place in the silence and solitude of the night. In this perverse state of my mind, the recollection of what had passed since the morning would not come back to me, and there was no resource but to close my journal and to get away from it for a little while. I opened the door, which led from my bedroom into my sitting-room, and having passed through, pulled it to again to prevent any accident in case of draft with the candle left on the dressing-table. My sitting-room window was wide open, and I leaned out listlessly to look at the night. It was dark and quiet. Neither moon nor stars were visible. There was a smell like rain in the still heavy air, and I put my hand out of window. No, the rain was only threatening. It had not come yet. I remained leaning on the windowsill for nearly a quarter of an hour, looking out absently into the black darkness, and hearing nothing, except now and then, the voices of the servants, or the distant sound of a closing door in the lower part of the house. Just as I was turning away wearily from the window to go back to the bedroom and make a second attempt to complete the unfinished entry in my journal, I smelt the odor of tobacco smoke stealing towards me on the heavy night air. The next moment I saw a tiny red spark advancing from the farther end of the house in the pitch darkness. I heard no footsteps, and I could see nothing but the spark. It traveled along in the night, past the window at which I was standing, and stopped opposite my bedroom window, inside which I had left the light burning on the dressing table. The spark remained stationary for a moment, then moved back again in the direction from which it had advanced. As I followed its progress, I saw a second red spark, larger than the first, approaching from the distance. The two met together in the darkness. Remembering who smoked cigarettes and who smoked cigars, I inferred immediately that the Count had come out first to look and listen under my window, and that Sir Percival had afterwards joined him. They must both have been walking on the lawn, or I should certainly have heard Sir Percival's heavy footfall, though the Count's soft step might have escaped me, even on the gravel walk. I waited quietly at the window, certain that they could neither of them see me in the darkness of the room. "'What's the matter?' I heard Sir Percival say in a low voice. 
"'Why don't you come in and sit down?' "'I want to see the light out of that window,' replied the Count softly. "'What harm does the light do?' "'It shows me she is not in bed yet. "'She is sharp enough to suspect something, "'and bold enough to come downstairs and listen, "'if she can get the chance. "'Patience, Percival, patience. "'Humbug, you're always talking of patience. "'I shall talk of something else presently. "'My good friend, you are on the edge of your domestic precipice.' "'and if I let you give the woman one other chance, "'on my sacred word of honor, they will push you over it. "'What the devil do you mean? "'We will come to our explanations, Percival, "'when the light is out of that window, "'and when I have had one little look at the rooms "'on each side of the library, "'and a peep at the staircase as well.' "'They slowly moved away, "'and the rest of the conversation between them, "'which had been conducted throughout in the same low tones, "'ceased to be audible.' It was no matter. I had heard enough to determine me on justifying the Count's opinion of my sharpness and my courage. Before the red sparks were out of sight in the darkness, I had made up my mind that there should be a listener when those two men sat down to their talk, and that the listener, in spite of all the Count's precautions to the contrary, should be myself. I wanted but one motive to sanction the act to my own conscience, and to give me courage enough for performing it, and that motive I had. Laura's honor, Laura's happiness, Laura's life itself might depend on my quick ears and my faithful memory tonight. I heard the Count say that he meant to examine the rooms on each side of the library and the staircase as well, before he entered on any explanation with Sir Percival. This expression of his intentions was necessarily sufficient to inform me that the library was the room in which he proposed that the conversation should take place. The one moment of time which was long enough to bring me to that conclusion was also the moment which showed me a means of baffling his precautions, or in other words, of hearing what he and Sir Percival said to each other without the risk of descending at all into the lower regions of the house. In speaking of the rooms on the ground floor, I have mentioned, incidentally, the veranda outside them, on which they all opened by means of French windows, extending from the cornice to the floor. The top of this veranda was flat, the rainwater being carried off from it by pipes into tanks, which helped to supply the house. On the narrow leaden roof, which ran along past the bedrooms, and which was rather less, I should think, than three feet below the sills of the window, a row of flower-pots was ranged, with wide intervals between each pot, the whole being protected from falling in high winds by an ornamental iron railing along the edge of the roof. The plan, which had now occurred to me, was to get out at my sitting-room window onto this roof, to creep along noiselessly till I reached that part of it which was immediately over the library window, and to crouch down between the flower-pots with my ear against the outer railing. If Sir Percival and the Count sat and smoked tonight, as I had seen them sitting and smoking many nights before, with their chairs close at the open window, and their feet stretched on the zinc garden seats, which were placed under the veranda, every word they said to each other above a whisper, and no long conversation, as we all know by experience, can be carried on in a whisper, must inevitably reach my ears. If, on the other hand, they chose tonight to sit far back inside the room, then the chances were that I should hear little or nothing, 
and in that case I must run the far more serious risk of trying to outwit them downstairs. Strongly as I was fortified in my resolution by the desperate nature of our situation, I hoped most fervently that I might escape this last emergency. My courage was only a woman's courage after all, and it was very near to failing me when I thought of trusting myself on the ground floor at the dead of night within reach of Sir Percival and the Count. I went softly back to my bedroom to try the safer experiment of the veranda roof first. A complete change in my dress was imperatively necessary for many reasons. I took off my silk gown to begin with, because the slightest noise from it on that still night might have betrayed me. I next removed the white and cumbersome parts of my underclothing and replaced them by a petticoat of dark flannel. Over this I put my black traveling cloak and pulled the hood onto my head. In my ordinary evening costume I took up the room of three men at least. In my present dress, when it was held close about me, no man could have passed through the narrow spaces more easily than I. The little breadth left on the roof of the veranda, between the flower-pots on one side and the wall and the windows of the house on the other, made this a serious consideration. If I knocked anything down, if I made the least noise, who could say what the consequences might be? I only waited to put the matches near the candle before I extinguished it, and groped my way back into the sitting-room. I locked that door as I had locked my bedroom door, then quietly got out of the window and cautiously set my feet on the leaden roof of the veranda. My two rooms were at the inner extremity of the new wing of the house in which we all lived, and I had five windows to pass before I could reach the position it was necessary to take up immediately over the library. The first window belonged to a spare room, which was empty. The second and third windows belonged to Laura's room. The fourth window belonged to Sir Percival's room. The fifth belonged to the Countess's room. The others, by which it was not necessary for me to pass, were the windows of the Count's dressing room, of the bathroom, and of the second empty spare room. No sound reached my ears. The black, blinding darkness of the night was all round me when I first stood on the veranda, except at that part of it which Madame Fosco's window overlooked. There, at the very place above the library to which my course was directed, there I saw a gleam of light. The Countess was not yet in bed. It was too late to draw back. It was no time to wait. I determined to go on at all hazards, and trust for security to my own caution and to the darkness of the night. For Laura's sake, I thought to myself, as I took the first step forward on the roof, with one hand holding my cloak close round me, and the other groping against the wall of the house. It was better to brush close by the wall than to risk striking my feet against the flower-pots within a few inches of me on the other side. I passed the dark window of the spare room, trying the leaden roof at each step with my foot before I risked resting my weight on it. I passed the dark windows of Laura's room. God bless her and keep her tonight. I passed the dark window of Sir Percival's room. Then I waited a moment, knelt down with my hands to support me, and so crept to my position under the protection of the low wall between the bottom of the lighted window and the veranda roof. When I ventured to look up at the window itself, 
I found that the top of it only was open, and that the blind inside was drawn down. While I was looking, I saw the shadow of Madame Fosco pass across the white field of the blind, then pass slowly back again. Thus far she could not have heard me, or the shadow would surely have stopped at the blind, even if she had wanted courage enough to open the window and look out. I placed myself sideways against the railing of the veranda, first ascertaining, by touching them, the position of the flower-pots on either side of me. There was room enough for me to sit between them, and no more. The sweet-scented leaves of the flower on my left hand just brushed my cheek as I lightly rested my head against the railing. The first sounds that reached me from below were caused by the opening or closing, most probably the latter, of three doors in succession, the doors, no doubt, leading into the hall and into the rooms on each side of the library, which the Count had pledged himself to examine. The first object that I saw was the red spark again, traveling out into the night, from under the veranda, moving away towards my window, waiting a moment, and then returning to the place from which it had set out. "'The devil take your restlessness. When do you mean to sit down?' growled Sir Percival's voice beneath me. "'Oof, how hot it is,' said the Count, sighing and puffing wearily. His exclamation was followed by the scraping of the garden chairs on the tiled pavement under the veranda, the welcome sound which told me they were going to sit close at the window, as usual. So far, the chance was mine. The clock in the turret struck the quarter to twelve as they settled themselves in their chairs. I heard Madame Fosco through the open window yawning, and saw her shadow pass once more across the white field of the blind. Meanwhile, Sir Percival and the Count began talking together below, now and then dropping their voices a little lower than usual, but never sinking them to a whisper. The strangeness and peril of my situation, the dread, which I could not master, of Madame Fosco's lighted window made it difficult, almost impossible for me at first, to keep my presence of mind and to fix my attention solely on the conversation beneath. For some minutes, I could only succeed in gathering the general substance of it. I understood the Count to say that the one window alight was his wife's, that the ground floor of the house was quite clear, and that they might now speak to each other without fear of accidents. Sir Percival merely answered by upbraiding his friend with having unjustifiably slighted his wishes and neglected his interests all through the day. The Count, thereupon, defended himself by declaring that he had been beset by certain troubles and anxieties which had absorbed all his attention, and that the only safe time to come to an explanation was a time when they could feel certain of being neither interrupted nor overheard. "'We are at a serious crisis in our affairs, Percival,' he said, "'and if we are to decide on the future at all, "'we must decide secretly tonight.'" That sentence of the Count's was the first which my attention was ready enough to master exactly as it was spoken. From this point, with certain breaks and interruptions, my whole interest fixed breathlessly on the conversation, and I followed it word for word. Crisis, repeated Sir Percival. It's a worse crisis than you think for, I can tell you. So I should suppose from your behavior for the last day or two, returned the other coolly. But wait a little. 
before we advance to what I do not know, let us be quite certain of what I do know. Let us first see if I am right about the time that has passed, before I make any proposal to you for the time that is to come. Stop till I get the brandy and water. Have some yourself. Thank you, Percival. The cold water with pleasure, a spoon, and the basin of sugar. Oh, sucre, my friend, nothing more. Sugar and water for a man of your age. There, mix your sickly mess. You foreigners are all alike. Now listen, Percival. I will put our position plainly before you, as I understand it, and you shall say if I'm right or wrong. You and I both came back to this house from the continent with our affairs very seriously embarrassed. Cut it short. I wanted some thousands and you some hundreds, and without the money we were both in a fair way to go to the dogs together. There's the situation. Make what you can of it. Go on. Well, Percival, in your own solid English words, you wanted some thousands, and I wanted some hundreds, and the only way of getting them was for you to raise the money, for your own necessity, with a small margin beyond for my poor little hundreds, by the help of your wife. What did I tell you about your wife on our way to England? And what did I tell you again when we had come here, and when I had seen for myself the sort of woman Miss Halcombe was? How should I know? You talked nineteen to the dozen, I suppose, just as usual. I said this. Human ingenuity, my friend, has hitherto only discovered two ways in which a man can manage a woman. One way is to knock her down, a method largely adopted by the brutal lower orders of the people, but utterly abhorrent to the refined and educated classes above them. The other way, much longer, much more difficult, but in the end not less certain, is never to accept a provocation at a woman's hands. It holds with animals, it holds with children, and it holds with women who are nothing but children grown up. Quiet resolution is the one quality the animals, the children, and the women all fail in. If they can once shake this superior quality in their master, they get the better of him. If they can never succeed in disturbing it, he gets the better of them. I said to you, Remember that plain truth when you want your wife to help you to money. I said, remember it doubly in the presence of your wife's sister, Miss Halcombe. Have you remembered it? Not once in all the implications that have twisted themselves about us in this house. Every provocation that your wife and her sister could offer to you, you instantly accepted from them. Your mad temper lost the signature to the deed, lost the ready money, set Miss Halcombe writing to the lawyer for the first time. First time, has she written again? Yes, she has written again today. A chair fell on the pavement of the veranda, fell with a crash, as if it had been kicked down. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.